Welcome to the Engines of Texan, Episode 9, The Integrated Circuit. I'm Brandon C. July in Dallas is hot, and July in 1958 was even hotter. Texas was slugging its way through its worst drought on record, and although air conditioning was taking the state by storm, people still mostly worked according to the rhythms of pre-air conditioned years. And since closing the office was the normal response to insufferably hot days, some companies just preemptively required their employees to take their vacations in July. That was Dallas-based Texas Instruments policy in 1958 when a 34-year-old engineer named Jack Kilby started working there. Texas Instruments was one of the oil industry spinoffs alluded to back in Episode 7, founded originally as the Geophysical Research Corporation, dedicated to collecting and processing seismic data for oil exploration. Actually, the role of oil and gas seismic processing in advancing the tech industry is pretty significant. From sonar, to advances in digital data storage, to quantum computing, to auto-tune, all of these things found their first applications in the oil industry's need to collect and process staggering amounts of data about the subsurface. Eventually, though, many of these companies found other ways to commercialize those technologies, such as in 1954 when Texas Instruments had crossed over into the mainstream with the introduction of the Regency TR1 Pocket Radio. It was revolutionary, a portable, pocket-sized musical device that sold for $49.95. Within a year, Texas Instruments sold 100,000 of them and was firmly on its path to becoming a technology company rather than just an oil field services company. The TR, in the name Regency TR1, stood for Transistor Radio, which called out the key technological innovation that had made the product possible, the transistor. The transistor itself had just been invented in 1947 by Bell Labs to replace the vacuum tube. A vacuum tube is really just a glorified light bulb. And like an incandescent light bulb, a vacuum tube is fragile, large, expensive, electricity hungry, and puts out an incredible amount of waste heat. The transistor, by contrast, made from a couple slices of semiconductor material, was robust, small, cheap, used one one-thousandth of the electricity of a vacuum tube, and shed a comparably low amount of heat all while performing the principal tasks of the vacuum tube just as effectively. The transistor was particularly well-suited for pocket radios, but it didn't take long for product developers to find other applications for it, too. From hearing aids to rocket guidance systems, transistors revolutionized anything where size and efficiency mattered, which, as we've seen going back to the days of the first native equestrians in Texas, is almost everything. And yet installing transistors wasn't easy. Each transistor had to be hand-soldered in place, typically by women's hands, FYI, meaning that a device with 1,000 transistors might require 10,000 soldered connections. And like old Christmas lights, all it took was one bad one to make the entire device inoperable. The problem had become so well-recognized in engineering circles by 1958 that it had a name, the so-called interconnections problem. According to the recollections of an older Jack Kilby, quote, it was pretty well accepted that this was the problem that had to be solved, end quote. And in July of 1958, Jack Kilby had the time on his hands to solve it. Because he had just joined TI a few months earlier, he hadn't accrued enough vacation time to even take the compulsory vacation that July. So Kilby found himself stuck in the office pretty much alone. 
which isn't the worst thing for a solution-oriented practical engineer. It gave him time and space to tease out an idea that he had written down in his notebook a few months prior. Quote, it would be desirable to make multiple devices on a single piece of silicon in order to be able to make interconnections between devices as part of the manufacturing process and thus reduce weight, size, etc., as well as cost per active element, end quote. Jack Kilby was as thoughtful about his problem-solving process as he was about the problems that he was trying to solve. His first step, as he described it, was to define clearly the problem to be solved. In his words, quote, a lot of solutions fail because they are solving the wrong problem, end quote. Second, he then tried to step back and review the problem again generally at the highest level possible. Third and last, he would zoom back in on the mechanics of the challenge, tuning out the obvious solutions because if it was obvious, someone would have already done it, and then iterate over and over and over, shifting intentionally from the specific to the general to the specific to keep both of them in equal focus. But what separated engineers from theoreticians in Jack Kilby's mind was his old farm boy's cost consciousness. According to Kilby, quote, you could design a nuclear-powered baby bottle warmer and it might work, but it's not an engineering solution, end quote. And anyone who's ever worked in business can appreciate this. The truly gifted engineers aren't the ones that can just devise a solution. They're the ones that can devise a solution that costs less than what people are willing to pay for it. By contrast, almost everyone else who was working on the interconnections problem was hyper-focused on miniaturizing the transistor by making each component smaller, without really thinking about how to make the whole thing smaller. And their solutions were exceedingly expensive, since they were focused on the best, which usually meant the most expensive, materials for each individual component, rather than the best material for the problem at large. And yet, Jack Kilby realized that there was an entire class of elements— widely distributed throughout the planet and therefore cheap, that were not the best material for any single transistor task, but that might work adequately enough at each individual task to get the larger job done. Silicon and germanium, for example, do conduct electricity. That's why they're called semiconductors. But as the name semiconductor suggests, semiconductors don't conduct as well as pure conductors like silver or gold. Another way to say it is that silicon and germanium are semi-resistive, and that they're also slightly resistive to the flow of electrical current. And actually, resistivity was something that transistors needed as well. Again, the best resistors were typically made of something else, carbon, for example. But silicone or germanium could also do the job. And actually, come to think of it, you could make the insulators between conductors out of germanium too, so-called capacitors. The best capacitors were made of porcelain, but once again, semiconductors served. On July 24th, 1958, it all came together in Kilby's head, and he wrote in his lab notebook, quote, the following circuit elements could all be made on a single slice, resistors, capacitor, distributed capacitor, and transistor, end quote. Specifically, on a single slice of semiconductor material, like germanium, or more famously, silicon. While everyone else was fixated on miniaturizing the existing parts and on optimizing the performance of each component, they were missing the fact that that wasn't really the problem the world was trying to solve. By settling for mediocre performance on the individual component parts, Jack Kilby solved the real problem. How to design a truly integrated circuit that could be manufactured by machines at scale and cheaply. 
On September 12, 1958, Jack Kilby demonstrated his prototype internally at Texas Instruments. It was a rough-looking patchwork of germanium that frankly looks like a four-year-old's failed art project. Kilby later said that, quote, Had I realized that I'd have to look at that thing for 42 years, I would have put a little more effort into its appearance. You can see pictures of it online, and one of the earlier prototypes is at the Bullock Museum in Austin. But the point is that it worked. In March of 1959, the next year, after a little more refinement, Texas Instruments debuted Kilby's Integrated Circuit at the annual convention of the Institute of Radio Engineers, where almost nobody appreciated it. GE, Sylvania, Westinghouse, the logical customers, if not acquirers of the technology, all passed on it. There was only one other firm that appreciated its potential impact, a firm founded by a group of engineers that had themselves spun out of a spinoff from the Bell Labs inventor of the transistor, Fairchild Semiconductor. Fairchild Semiconductor had also been independently experimenting with semiconductors. And after seeing Jack Kilby's creation, they went to the patent office, pulled Texas Instruments patent application, and realized that there was an opening for them. Texas Instruments drawings in the patent application didn't match the actual design as written up or produced by Jack Kilby. Instead of showing wires integrated into printed grooves on the integrated circuit as described by Kilby, the drawings featured wires flying out the top like spider's legs. Kilby's innovation, it seems, was too radical even for his own company's patent illustrators to understand. Fairchild believed that they could differentiate their patent by correctly describing the integrated circuit with the wires integrated into the grooves on the semiconductor chip itself, and on July 30th, 1959, they filed their patent. Two years later, on April 26, 1961, the first U.S. patent for an integrated circuit was granted to Fairchild Semiconductor. It would set off a decade of litigation between Texas Instruments and Fairchild, which would eventually end with the two parties reaching a settlement to grant each other unlimited reciprocal licenses for the use and production of the integrated circuit. It was one of those cases where the market was so large and growing so rapidly that each party decided it was more profitable to focus on the production of the circuit than to fight over the IP. Because in those intervening years, an enormous customer had emerged for the integrated circuit. The dream customer, in fact, of every great innovator in American history, from Eli Whitney to Samuel Colt to Gail Borden, the U.S. government. On September 12, 1962, U.S. President John F. Kennedy had appeared at Rice University in Houston and made his famous, We Choose to Go to the Moon speech, following through on an earlier commitment he had made before a joint session of Congress to place a man on the moon and return him safely before this decade was out. This unleashed a flood of spending by NASA unparalleled in the peacetime history of the United States. Integrated circuits were particularly well-suited and particularly necessary for spaceflight. Machines were required to perform the complicated aeronautical calculations, and every extra pound of payload translated into a need for five pounds of propellant. NASA could and did pay almost any price for these circuits, which they found use for in just about everything from guidance systems to telemetry encoders to infrared trackers to Loran receivers to basic avionics. The U.S. government was, in fact, the entirety of the market for the integrated circuit until 1964 and still fully half of the market well into the 70s. By the time Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the moon on July 20, 1969, the Apollo program had purchased more than one million integrated circuits and driven the price down to a quarter of where it had started earlier in the decade, from about $32 a piece to something like $8 a piece. 
and the price kept falling. By 1971, the cost was down to about $1.27 per unit, about one-twentieth its original price, in about the same amount of time that it took railroads to drop freight prices in Texas by the same multiple, incidentally. In 1968, a pair of former NASA contractors named Gus Roche and Phil Ray, who was also a Texas Instruments alum, founded a company called the Computer Terminal Corporation in San Antonio. This was only four years after integrated circuits had hit the private market, but Roche and Ray had the idea to apply the integrated circuit to the teletype machines that filled American corporate offices at the time. Teletypes were something between a cutting-edge telegraph and a primitive email. You typed a message out onto a specialized keyboard, sent it through a phone line, and it then printed out on the receiving end from a similar typewriter. Teletype messages could be sent to one or to many different receivers all at once, and in an age when long-distance calls were prohibitively expensive, it was a radically more effective way to send and receive information. Roche and Ray's innovation was to install intuitive alphabetic keyboards on each end of the line, screens to allow senders to review their messages before sending them, and receivers to receive them instantly, silently, and without the mess of ticker tape. They called their terminals the Data Point 3300, they hired a motorcycle helmet designer to design a sleek case, a top Madison Avenue marketing agency to market it, and it became an immediate hit. Anyone who could press a button now could send information instantly around the world. By 1970, just two years later, they IPO'd and changed their company name to Datapoint to capitalize on the success of their product. And they were neck deep in designing an even more advanced terminal, which they rather counterintuitively named the Datapoint 2200 in an attempt to highlight how much smaller it was. But this also obscured a little bit how revolutionary this next product was too. The Datapoint 2200 was programmable by the user. Messaging could be automated, and you could tell the machine to do stuff with the information that it sent and received. For example, Datapoint 2200, send out a summary of employee hours worked at every location, every Friday, over the phone lines, Rather than having to have people mail timesheets across the country and have a clerk add up the hours, produce a report, and then cut payroll checks. And do it all instantly. Or, data point, 2200. Call in every branch's inventory data at the end of each week. Let data point's internal memory store it. Let its processor add it up. And then let central headquarters optimize it in ways that radically reduce the amount of working capital that we have to tie up in inventory. These kind of things are so integrated now into our daily lives that we take them for granted. But Datapoint was building system architecture from off-the-shelf Texas Instrument chips that frankly really weren't designed for it. In fact, Datapoint's designs tended to make the Texas Instrument circuits overheat and malfunction. So Datapoint turned to Texas Instrument's newest competitor, Intel, itself effectively a spinoff from Fairchild. Datapoint was already Intel's largest customer for a type of chip known as the shift register, and Datapoint's biographer Lamont Wood speculates that Datapoint might have even been Intel's largest customer, period, at that time. So for the Datapoint 2200 terminal, Datapoint went to Intel and presented them with a specification sheet for a customized chip processor, as they called it. It would represent a departure for Intel, which at the time viewed itself principally as being in the memory chip business. Their view was that you could only sell one processor per terminal, but you could sell an unlimited amount of memory. Even the 4004 chip that they had released in 1971, I'm told, was more accurately a microcontroller chip, not a microprocessor, a control panel for issuing instructions like the kind of thing you have inside of a microwave, not for manipulating data. Intel 
was reluctant to take the commission for DataPoint's microprocessor chip. In the words of Intel CEO Robert Noyce at the time, the microprocessor was a, quote, useless product, end quote. Intel only agreed to build it if DataPoint funded the development cost and assigned the intellectual property for the chip to Intel. The tech press now commonly refers to DataPoint's acceptance of these terms from Intel as the, quote, worst business decision in history, end quote because the resulting 8008 microprocessing chip which Intel produced for DataPoint is what launched it on its path to becoming the $100 billion giant that it is today. It's probably unfair, though, to second-guess the decision too much. On the one hand, even if DataPoint had retained ownership of their chip design, Intel probably could have just tweaked a few things and developed their own variant and gotten around the IP. And plus, the arrangement actually got DataPoint what they wanted at the time. They got a chip that they could rapidly deploy into their new product line and get it to market. And as soon as they got to market, DataPoint 2200 sold faster than DataPoint could produce them. With an integrated keyboard, screen, mass storage, internal memory, communications capabilities, processor, operating system, and a price that individuals could afford, the DataPoint 2200 has slowly, if not a bit begrudgingly, become recognized as the world's first personal computer. DataPoint would develop many other firsts in the personal computing space. The first word processor in the form of their Scribe program, the first Wi-Fi communication systems, the first local area networks, LANs, which they actually called the Internet at first before abandoning the term. At their peak, DataPoint did more than $100 million a year in revenue and employed 9,000 people. By the 1990s, however, they were firmly on the path to bankruptcy, a victim of financial engineering, a closed operating system, and frankly, of its isolation from the cluster of innovation which had taken root firmly in California by that time. You can actually see the very first data point 2200 today at the San Antonio Museum of Science and Technology, located in the new Techport building on the grounds of Port San Antonio. And you can find David Monroe, former CEO of DataPoint, there on most days. Talking to him one day, I asked him why, given the early leadership of Texas Instruments and DataPoint, Silicon Valley didn't happen in Texas. Actually, in my presumptuous way, I stated my theory as to why it hadn't happened. My theory went something like this, that from the days of Tejano Stockman to the antebellum cotton planters to 20th century oilmen, Texans deep down believed that the only real wealth comes from land. And so, I proposed to Monroe, Texans couldn't appreciate the value-creating potential of a little piece of silicon in a way that a more commerce-minded culture like California's could. But Monroe pushed back on me. He pointed to all the computing and tech innovation that has come out of Texas, much of it in a direct line of descent from Texas Instruments and DataPoint. For example, Fort Worth's Radio Shack with their TRS-80 home computer kits, the whole computer graphics hub that emerged in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Mostech, another Dallas company founded by a TI alum that, quote, materially advanced dynamic random access memory through address multiplexing, end quote, which tech folks assure me is a really big deal. Ross Perot's EDS and all the computer manufacturers like AST, Compaq, and of course, Dell. And don't forget that when old rivals like Texas Instruments and Intel and IBM came together to defend the American semiconductor industry against new Japanese competitors in the form of an industry consortium called Semitech, they chose as their headquarters, Austin, whose economy since then has probably owed much more to the tech industry than to more traditional Texas industries like ag or oil. 
The National Academy of the Sciences has described Kilby's invention of the integrated circuit as the catalyst of the, quote, second industrial revolution, end quote. It launched the computer age, accelerated the concentration of populations into urban areas, and has helped lift the comparative standard of living of nearly everyone on the planet. Kilby went on to other inventions too, like the thermal printer, which is still used today to print your receipts at restaurants, and the pocket calculator, the descendants of which anyone who has taken high school math is probably familiar with. Kilby had a successful but pretty conventional corporate career, working his way up the ranks at Texas Instruments from engineer to manager of engineering, deputy director of semiconductor, but he never made Silicon Valley riches. In the year 2000, however, Jack Kilby was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics, an incredible accolade for the work of a staff engineer in Dallas. And he gave away most of the $1 million prize money. Texas's role in giving birth to the computing age is important, but it's hard to claim that it's uniquely Texan. The integrated circuit came out of a company that had established itself in Texas oil fields and in a state that had long appreciated the importance of energy density. But even if Jack Kilby hadn't invented the integrated circuit, it feels like someone would have and they might very well have done so somewhere else. But I don't think that should diminish our celebration of our tech heroes by any means, and it certainly doesn't diminish the impact that they've had on the shape of life in our state. But to round out our list of 10 engines of Texas history, I want to turn us back to something that couldn't have come from anywhere else. An engine that benefited from a centuries-old Texas model of regulation and a millennia-old Texan desire to overcome the distances that so define the state. Come fly the friendly skies with Southwest Airlines on the next episode of The Engines of Texan. Thank you for listening. There's a lot of good literature out there now on the integrated circuit. I relied mostly on an older book by T.R. Reed entitled The Chip. For the often overlooked history of DataPoint, check out Lamont Wood's book, DataPoint, the lost story of the Texans who invented the personal computer. This season is brought to you by the 11th Street River House in Bandera, Texas. Sort of. My wife and I have dreamed for years about owning a place in Bandera, and we finally bought a house there last year. Four blocks from the bars, three blocks from the Frontier Times Museum, with 120 feet of Medina River frontage, and a collection of historic Texas maps on the wall, curated by yours truly. It's a great place to spend a weekend and to sort of indirectly support this podcast. Look it up under 11th Street River House on Airbnb or on VRBO. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. Stephen Bennett also composed and performed the theme music. You can find more about Stephen at info at nosomedia, N-O-S-O media.com. David Moore designed the cover art for the season. You can find him at illustrationonline.com. For more information on our sources and other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>